Today on Craving Answers, Craving God, let's talk about the rapture. Some people don't know what I'm talking about when I reference that term. Others see it as a doctrine that has been with us throughout the church age. Still others believe in a relatively new teaching that the church will be taken up just years before the second coming of Christ. It is a subject that has successfully sold many, many books. Let's dig into the topic of the rapture on this edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathert with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. Aaron, I mentioned in our opening that there are differing views on the rapture. Let's assume here at the onset that we have a listener who's not familiar with the rapture. Can you give us a kind of rapture 101? Yeah, so um, I think I think you're right. There's probably a lot of listeners who don't know that word rapture, or if they've heard it, aren't sure what it means. The idea of the the ideas surrounding the rapture, the notion that there's going to be this great apocalyptic cataclysmic event, and that's been uh, that's kind of in the that, that's in the uh, cultural mainstream now. I think that um, the Left Behind series is at least a couple decades old. I, I'm not sure, maybe even more than that, but. That was kind of one of the first sort of. Um, so, what's the Left Behind series? That's a series of books, uh, and, and I can't speak too authoritatively about it because I've not read them. But it's a series of books which they they claim to be fictional. Um, the, the writer Tim LaHaye describes them as fictional, but it imagines uh, a world where uh, Jesus returns, which Tim LaHaye does believe he's going to do and takes all the Christians out of the world, which Tim LaHaye also believes that's what's going to happen. And and the story that he describes it when that happened, he calls it fiction. Uh, I don't know if, I don't know what the term for that would be. Some sort of like, it's it's fiction, but it's based upon what he really thinks is going to happen. And so that, you know, everything's horrible. There's uh, lots of uh, uh, political persecution. There's lots of cataclysmic natural events that are horrible. As so everybody's kind of familiar with that in our culture, um, because that sort of spawned uh, a whole genre of, and it's not that it didn't exist before Left Behind, but this fascination with what would the world look like if some sort of cataclysmic event happened, which we talked about a couple of episodes ago. So everybody's sort of familiar with this notion, even if you don't come at it from the Christian angle. Uh, you're, you know, a lot of us have watched movies or read books that are the children of this. Left Behind series. Well, the uh, it, it comes from the Bible. The notion of the rapture comes from the Bible, and it's not taught a lot, but there's uh, one part of uh, the teaching of St. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, where he talks about Jesus returning and raising the dead, and then he says, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with those who've been raised, uh, caught up together with them in the air and to meet the Lord and we'll be with the, and so we will always be with the Lord. And that word uh, caught up in Latin is the, uh, the word that we get the word rapture from. And so um, the, the, te- the biblical teaching on the rapture is, is that someday Jesus is going to come back and rescue those who belong to him. So 
I think I can get on board with that. Uh, Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to take the church, right? Uh, what's what's to argue with there? Well, yeah, I guess. So, uh, so why are we why are we talking about this? Uh, as far as arguments go, and this is kind of an in-house Christian debate that maybe some of our listeners won't be interested in. There's different interpretations of what that rapture will look like and when it will happen. Larger picture, I think it's important to talk about because for the same reasons that we talked about uh, the end of the world a couple of episodes ago, uh, because everybody's sort of, um, and I say everybody, I'm going to say you know, 90, 95% of the people anticipate there to be some sort of horrible end to this physical world, whether it's through war or, you know, currently we all have in, in mind uh, uh, the possibility of a mass virus and its ability to kill lo- lots of people, maybe even everybody. Uh, at different times in the past few years, global war- warming has been uh, uh, the great fear that the world is going to end in uh, some sort of uh, um, global warming uh, event. We're all afraid of it, and so as Christians, I, I want to talk. As a Christian, I want to talk to unbelievers about what the Bible says about the end of the world, and what that looks like, and to give people hope. And part of that is talking about the rapture. So I guess that's why we're talking about it today. So what if I were to say, yeah, I'm. I haven't read the Left Behind series either, but I know what it's what it advances. Late Great Planet Earth and Hal Lindsey. Uh, hey, look, there's no rapture. That's just a false doctrine. What would you say? Well, um, I'd, I'd want to find out what you mean, because when, when people say that, uh, what, you know, what do they mean? For, first of all, if they mean that it's not in the Bible, I would say, well, that's not true, because uh, you have that text that I just talked about from 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul does talk about uh, believers being caught up in the air to be with Jesus. Now, if what you mean is the way that Tim LaHaye talks about it is not real, or the way other Christians that we know describe it is probably a misunderstanding, then I'm on board with you. Yeah, but but it is in there, so it's worth talking about. So you mentioned uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and the Latin word, which gives us the English translation, caught up. Have you ever have you ever thought about this? Have you ever used your imagination about this? If Jesus were to return today, this would happen to us. We would be caught up. Paul talks about those who have preceded and and died, but then when if Jesus were to come back today, then we would be caught up. Is this like apocalyptic literature? It's like, no, don't don't use your imagination on that. Don't try to imagine what that would look like. Or do you think this is more or less literal here? We're going to fly up in the air into the clouds and meet Jesus uh, up in the atmosphere? Yeah. Uh, th- this is really the only time that this is talked about in Scripture. So I, I wouldn't make a whole, you know, for one, I wouldn't write a whole series of novels and have movies made out of this one concept. It's it's just probably can't carry the weight. Why not? Well, it can't carry the weight of it. You know, I just uh, with only one verse, and it's it is there are disagreements about what it means. Uh, that being said, I don't see that there's anything in here that would indicate that it's not 
a literal thing that that uh, the dead. It's very so. This text that we're talking about talks about the dead being raised. That is very well. I mean, that's uh, um, spoken of quite a lot in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian New Testament. That there's a time coming when God is going to raise His children back to life out of their graves. I believe that that's literal. Um, I don't have any reason to believe that this isn't literal. Now, what does it mean? That's a good question. But but I do believe it's going to happen. Now, as far as like imagining it, uh, I personally, I don't. It's not a problem. But it just here's my personal thing: is that I grew up in a Tim LaHaye type church. Uh, there was a, a movie that went around when I was a kid that churches would watch, uh, and now I can't remember what the name of the movies were. But there was a song that the, that the, it was about this event, you know, this sort of like very very scary and dark, and all of a sudden all the Christians were gone, and the people who were left here uh, were, were all singing this song. I wish we'd all been ready. And I, I, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of that movie now. But it was very very popular in churches like mine. So. Um, honestly, where I'm at now, I'm kind of done imagining it. I spent my childhood imagining this stuff, and, and it didn't help me sleep better at night. And on reflecting back upon it, th- what I was imagining wasn't actually from the Bible. It was, you know, it was uh, people's creative minds working with the fears. In, in, in a, uh, uh, to, to be quite frank with you, uh, Christians taking some basic truths of Scripture. But then reading them through the filter of, you know, when I was a kid, the, the Cold War was very much going on, and all the fears that we had growing up with the possibility of uh, nuclear destruction and uh, political, uh, you know, governments out of control and wars, and to filter this notion that Jesus is going to return someday through that created this some kind this, this weird sort of creative uh, canvas of destruction. And I, I grew up with a, um, a, you know, a painting that I saw in a church where, you know, Jesus is returning and it's like this uh, cityscape below him and there's planes flying into buildings because pilots have been raptured and there's, uh, you know, uh, cars crashing and that sort of thing. Uh, just me personally, and now I've probably spent way too long uh, telling you why I don't imagine this stuff, but me personally, I'm kind of over that, imagining it. You have a smile on your face as you uh, recall this. Uh, so is this am- is it amusing to you now to look back on it? or uh, A little bit. I mean, it just seems sort of uh, – and I don't want to belittle it because these were people who, who you know, loved Jesus and were concerned about people being prepared and ready for the end of the world, which uh, I think that's a far better attitude than, you know, many in our culture. I, so I, I identify more – I identify more maybe because of the way I grew up with the people who are freaked out about global warming or freaked out about the virus than I do with people who take the, well, let's just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we, will, we, we may die. I, probably that's because that's the way I grew up. But as far as like, you know, imagining a painting in a church of planes crashing because pilots, you, you know, a little Cessna pl- uh, crashing because the pilot and his passenger have been raptured and are no longer there to pilot the plane. Um, I guess I find it a little bit humorous. Maybe I shouldn't, but... So, um, the Bible teaches clearly, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, that the next really big prophetically uh, predicted event on God's calendar is the return of Christ. 
everything else that has been prophesied has been fulfilled, Jesus fulfilled in the time he was here, and he said he was coming back, and that's what we're waiting for. We say in the Apostles' Creed, when we confess that creed, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. Does this conversation fit into Christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead? Do they all work together? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, the way I grew up, to, to go back to my uh, religious upbringing again, they were separate events. The rapture happened seven years before Jesus returns and raises the dead. Okay, so th- that's not taught in the Bible is the only problem with that. Um, well, I mean, I guess there's other problems, but that's the main one is that there's really no scriptural basis for it. The text that we've been talking about, 1 Thessalonians 4, describes the return of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, and I believe the, 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 that's the beginning point of the eternal future reign of Jesus on this earth and ruling over a world that's full of righteousness and peace and justice where wars and sickness and natural disasters uh, have been uh, done away with or tamed in the case of natural disasters. Um, so somebody, some, some people might question, they might say, well, what it says, we're caught up together in the air. How can we be going up in the air and Jesus be returning to earth at the same time? Those two things don't go together. And I would say, uh, well, give me three minutes to explain this, that the key here is the, the word meet in this verse. Uh, uh, we'll be caught up together in the air to meet the Lord, Paul says. And that word meet, like I, I know in English it sounds like Jesus is coming back for us. We fly up into the air to meet him, and then he takes us away out of this bad earth. But the word meet there in Greek is a very, very technical word. There's other words for meet that we could just use in the normal scenario of like, you know, I, I, um, I met my mom outside after basketball practice and she picked me up and took me home. There's other words for meet that would just, or I just met, I met my friend at the store. Um, the word meet here is a technical word in Greek. And what it means is somebody going out to meet a visiting dignitary to welcome them into a building or into the city. And um, the, the best way I can... So there's a kind of a formality to it. Yeah, yeah. But, but it also involves going out to meet somebody and then bringing them back in. Uh, so it's not a going out to meet somebody because you're leaving where you came from. It's going out to meet somebody to welcome them back into where you just came from, to welcome them back in. And uh, I, I know that it sounds like I'm cooking the books there and making up meanings for that word. The best thing I can do to defend that is just to, to point out that there are three times this word meet, this specific word for meet is used in the New Testament. This is one of them, of course. The other two times, uh, once in uh, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is telling a story uh, about, it's a parable, it's a, it's a fictional story about uh, 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 girls who are wedding celebrants. They're celebrating a wedding, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to show up at the wedding. And when they hear that he's showing up, they rush out of the wedding hall to meet him, to welcome him back into the wedding hall. And that word meet is used here. 
because that's what they're doing. They're not leaving the wedding hall to go back home or they're not leaving the wedding hall to meet the bridegroom so that he can take them somewhere else. And they're not staying in the wedding hall waiting for the bridegroom to get right. all the way to the hall. Exactly. Yeah. They're leaving the, the they're leaving the wedding hall to meet in this technical sense the bridegroom and welcome him back into his own wedding. Uh, the other time it's used is in uh, Acts chapter 28, where Paul, uh, St. Paul, the same guy who writes the, the, verse, the, the verses that we've been talking about so far this morning, or today, I should say, um, St. Paul is going to visit Rome, and when the elders at the church at Rome uh, hear that Paul is coming, uh, the book of Acts says they left Rome and came out to meet him as far as Appius in the three taverns. So they come out and they meet him outside of the city of Rome, and they welcome him back. And once again, they leave the Rome, they leave where they're at to come and meet in this technical sense, Paul. And then they all journey back together because Paul's a dignitary. He's you know he's an apostle, just like the bridegroom was a dignitary. He's kind of the the, the main man in the in the wedding. They go out to meet him to welcome him back into Rome. So. That being the meaning, when you go to First Thessalonians four and it says uh, Jesus is going to catch us up into the air with Him, so that we can meet Him, and then we'll always be with the Lord. What it's saying is, is that Jesus, when He returns, is going to invite His people out to welcome Him as the dignitary, as the leader of the of the new the new world, the new creation, and then we will continue back with Him to this earth. So, if I were to say. Anybody who calls himself a Christian is committed to the doctrine of the second coming. You can't call yourself a Christian and believe that and not believe that Jesus is coming back a second time. Therefore, all Christians believe in the rapture. It's not a question of whether he comes back again. It's a question of when and how he comes back again. So there, there are a large number of denominations and non-denominations, as you pointed out, who believe that we're not talking about his second coming here. We're talking about some preceding coming, which in many descriptions occurs seven years before Jesus returns in his second coming to catch out the church. Yeah, Is this something that's worth controversy it's worth you know digging deep you know do we need to it, it, let's just say that i believed in a in a, a rapture seven years before jesus yeah. comes back and you don't is this something we should talk about over lunch or should we just leave it alone we're not going to really get anywhere with it or no it's pretty important we should discuss it yeah um well I don't know. It's not the most important thing, to be honest with you. However, I do think it's important. Um, this is now, now we're, this is very much an in-house conversation we're having now between the way two Christians would think about think differently about this. I would want to sit down with you and talk about what, where do you think in the Bible it talks about this, and to go from there because there's a deeper issue that this taps into. This is sort of this is the question of like, does the rapture happen seven years before Jesus returns or right at the same time as Jesus returns? That question is a gateway into a larger and deeper question, which let me see if I can explain it. I'm not sure how interesting this will be, but the question is, who is the Bible written to? I would say it's written to God's people. 
and it's written it's it's written to everybody, of course, but it's 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 primarily written to God's people and, and to other people, inviting them to become one of God's people. And the way that God's people look over time has been a different, and there's mainly one big difference: separated by the cross and empty tomb. The, you know, the coming of Jesus. Prior to that, God's people looked like a political unit slash ethnic group, which you, you didn't have to be in the ethnic group to become a part of this, but it was definitely Israel was God's people. After Jesus, Israel is still God's people, but now Gentiles have been invited in to such an extent that by and large, ethnic Jews have become a minority, a very, very important minority to be sure, since our Lord and Savior Jesus is an ethnic Jew. And all of the apostles are ethnic Jews, very, very much an important minority. But at, at, at this point in time, God's people, is, they're a global phenomenon. They're pan-ethnic. They're pan-gender. They're pan-socioeconomic category. And so it's we talk about the church. We mean the same thing as the people of Israel, but with this difference. That's the position I hold. But if the people who typically believe that the rapture happens seven years before Jesus returns, typically hold this position, that there are two separate peoples of God. There's ethnic Israel, and then there's the Gentile church. And those two don't go together. Ethnic Israel is a physical entity, and God has made her physical promises that he will keep physically. The church is a spiritual entity, that God has made spiritual promises to, which he will keep spiritually. Some of the promises that were made to physical Israel are that she is going to go through suffering, but she is someday going to rule the entire world. The promises that God has made to spiritual church is that someday I will take you, I will get rid of your bad bodies and I will take you out of this bad earth, and I will take you up to live in spiritual bliss up in heaven. And so people who typically hold this say, for the church, they need to get to heaven. That's their goal is heaven. For Israel, redeemed by Jesus, the goal is this earth. And so there has to be a separation. And if that's where you're at, I'll say this is a much bigger issue that I want to get at. Not, not I'm not talking about not in this podcast, but in the conversation I want to know, like, if you believe that the main goal of your life as a Christian is to achieve this spiritual existence divorced from this bad, messy world, we, th that, that needs to be discussed because that leads to all sorts of, which we talked about, I believe, a couple of episodes ago, that leads to all sorts of attitudes about this earth, about environment, about politics, about human relationships that are very, very dismissive and can be very, very damaging. If we say these things don't matter, we're just, you know, we're just kind of hunkering down here and waiting for Jesus to take us to heaven someday. That can be very, very damaging to what the church is actually called to do, which is to be on mission here in this earth to rescue politics and relationships and entertainment and uh, um, the, the, uh, the vocations and the intellectual world. And so I'd really want to like kind of buckle down and figure out where that person is on that. Not necessarily to try and disabuse them of the notion that it's not about the seven-year gap. It's about how do you view the physical world and God's plans to redeem it. I don't know if any of that makes sense or not. But Well, let me see if I can 
I'm going to take a bit of a risk here and try to connect some of my own dots that I I pull from what I've read and listening to you talk, various places. And if this is just wrong, just say, Chuck, you know, you're, you've crossed the line, you're out of bounds. I'm thinking about a 19th century um, American preacher. His name was Charles Finney. And Charles Finney was early in the, uh, the tent preacher kind of game, you know, set up the tent, throw down the sawdust, put some chairs in there. And then he was kind of a fire and brimstone guy. And if I remember correctly, they had something in his meetings they called the anxious bench. And so apparently the purpose was to preach in such a terrifying way that the hearers could be, maybe might be moved to go ahead and decide to become a Christian based on the terror that they're hearing coming from the preacher. And so people who worked with the preacher would move these people up to the anxious bench. Now they're sitting in the front of the tent for all to see, and there's just a lot of pressure to go ahead and make that confession, be converted, become a Christian. The dots that I'm connecting here are this um, teaching of a rapture and then the seven years, the seven-year period often called the Great Tribulation, and then the literal thousand-year period that comes afterward, the millennium. You don't want to miss that. Right. And if you, if you preach that there's all this terror coming and some people are going to be taken away and they're not going to have to experience any of that. They're not have, going to have to go through the Great Tribulation. Uh, they just sort of skip that and go jump right to the uh, bliss of the millennium. Sounds like something Charles Finney would would really like to preach about. Am I in the ballpark here, or do you think I've taken it too far? My conclusions close or false or what? No, I. So you know, uh, Finney was uh, famous for trying to manipulate people, and and one of my fears when we talk about the second coming of Jesus and the rapture as Christians is that the purpose is to manipulate through fear. And uh, that's not the way the Bible talks about it. The, the, the second coming of Jesus, and, and now we're kind of circling back again to our, you know, you know go back and listen to the, the episode from a, a couple, um, couple episodes ago about the, um, the end of the world. You know, the purpose of the, none of this is designed by God or told to us by God in order to scare us into uh, making some sort of decision to be a Christian. What, what instead is held out to us, the promise that a world which everybody knows is already bad is going to be rescued someday, that somebody is coming to fix it, that, you know, we've thrown up the bat signal and the help is on the way. This is, you know, the, the, the reason why we like uh, superhero stories and myths. This is the reason why the Marvel movies and the DC movies are so popular is because we all have this deep inner craving that a good guy who can fix things is on the way. And none of us hardly ever believe that in our culture. You can step into a movie theater and for two and a half hours, you can believe it. And, and that provides a certain sense of comfort is why these movies are so popular. What, what the Bible insists is that the superhero is indeed on the way and is going to fix things. Now, the fixing things implies that things are going to be bad, which I don't know why that would surprise any of us. 
I think we're all aware that things are bad. But the way the Bible describes it is, is that, so here's a, here's a great image for you. Jesus is on his way back and he's going to fix things and he's going to turn the tribulation, the bad things into good things. One of the classic descriptions of the Bible about the return of Jesus, um, um, the, the bringing about of the new creation is of a woman giving birth. And this happens all the time. It happens in the Old Testament. It happens in the New Testament that uh, the day of the Lord is going to be like a woman who is in birth pangs. And the reason why that image is so great is that, and, and I can't even comprehend this. I, I just, you know, I watch my wife go through this several times. I can't even comprehend what any of this means for a woman to be willing actually to crave putting herself through what doctors tell us is the most painful thing a human can experience, squeezing another human being out of their body. To go through that, to go through that pain and that torment, to experience the joy of what that brings is an image that the Bible uses of the second coming of Jesus, that it is bad, it's definitely bad, but what it's bringing birth to is this, you know, so Gotham City is under distress. What that brings birth to is this incredible story of Batman coming and rescuing everything, right? And so the story of our universe being in distress, viruses, wars, genocides, racisms, natural disasters, that is prelude to the superhero coming and fixing everything. That, that shouldn't scare you. The point isn't to scare us. The point is to make us hungry for it. The point is to make us excited. The point is when it happens that we stand up and cheer. In fact, that we're so excited we fly up into the air to greet this superhero, to welcome him back down to this earth that he now is going to reign and rule over. The point is never fear. The point is always excitement and joy, and to use a biblical phrase, praise and worship. I used the term apocalyptic uh, some minutes ago, and we have talked about that in previous conversations for those who are not familiar with that term, you have described it very well in past conversations, but it refers to a kind of literature or a kind of presentation which is probably not to be taken literally. There's a lot of uh, symbols, metaphors, and yeah. so when we read the book of Revelation or we read various places in the book of Ezekiel, for, for example, we encounter this kind of literature. So what about what we read here in 1 Thessalonians 4, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air and all these various yeah. images? Do you take that literally, or do you say, no, 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 that's just sort of a symbol of something that's going to happen down the road? Yeah, so yeah, I mean, and you had asked this question earlier, and I think it's an important one. Um, yeah, so I, I, I do take this literally. I... Um, you know, I'm not the greatest biblical scholar in the world, but but I have read enough uh, apocalyptic literature, whether it's the Book of Daniel or Revelation, or uh, you know other apocalyptic literature from the time period, like the like the uh, so-called Book of Enoch. That th this doesn't smell like apocalyptic literature to me. Apocalyptic literature, you're right. It's it's meant to be true, but not literal. Uh, and I think the example I gave when we talked about this at one point was. Uh, you know, the I think it's Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem about the the, the opening battle of uh, the Revolutionary War, where he says, "Here the embattled farmer stood, and fired the shot heard round the world." Well, that's clearly symbolic, right? It's not the, the, there's actually not a musket 
that can make a shot that can be heard all the way around the world. But he's what he's doing is he's using symbolic language to infuse cosmic meaning into this farmer firing this gun. And the book of Revelation frequently does this. There are events that happen, and, and you can usually tell because they're highly symbolic. Um, horses of different colors, a uh, series of bowls being poured out, right? Uh, massive locusts flying through the air. There's usually symbolic stuff. Uh, there's not a lot of symbolism here. You know, what, what would the bodies being raised symbolize? That's, a, that's, a, uh, that's actually a, a literal event in the Bible. You know, Jesus, his body actually literally comes up out of the grave alive. So there's really not a lot of symbolism going on here. I would definitely take this literally. So sort of to close things down here, um, there, there have been times when I've heard uh, listening to religious radio and I hear a preacher and the, the preacher is or the teacher is just talking like the rapture is just the seven-year preceding rapture is just as true as the resurrection. Would you encourage me to turn that off or or react to it? Or what, what do we do with that message when we hear it, uh, which I think yeah. we've more or less discounted here today? Yeah, I, I wouldn't turn it off. I don't, I don't, like, if I start asking people to turn off sermons that have error in them, uh, I'm going to be inviting them to turn off my own sermons. So I, I don't, I would never invite somebody to turn something off. I mean, just as always, examine everything that we hear, whether it's from you know, the pastor of our own local church to, you know, our favorite uh, Christian podcast to, you know, a sermon that we hear that from somebody who we're just anticipating we're not going to agree with them because they're not part of our team. Whatever it is that you listen to, and, and I feel the same way about watching movies or watching the evening news or reading blogs or uh, looking at Twitter, uh, always, you know, read and take in everything that you see critically. Uh, I don't mean with with harsh criticism. I just mean critically evaluating everything by the standard of God's word and be eager to you know eat the fish and spit out the bones to take the truth that's there and then to be able to say well I, I don't agree with this part but uh yeah keep on keep on reading if you get in conversations with people like keep on taking them back to the Bible and always being using that as our filter and standard I guess a discussion on the uh, rapture is something of a moving target. Thanks for the conversation today. This is probably one of the more difficult subjects that I think we've probably tackled. We want to say thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God, with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. When you select an episode, you'll have an opportunity to click the like button or to click the share button on Facebook or Twitter. There's also a place where you can leave a comment. I'm Chuck Rathard. Thank you for listening to Craving Answers, Craving God.